This year, we are looking at a lot of different topics. We're going to cover quite a few different uh, areas of inquiry and study, and we're going to try to do so as though we're wearing glasses. Uh, Not just any old glasses, uh, but particularly the glasses that help us look through the lens of Christ. Uh, Our theme for the year is Christ vision, and we are trying to see the world through what we know and what we have learned and what we've experienced in Jesus Christ. And that should shape and alter and mold uh, the, the way that we see things around us. Um, right now, to start off the year, we're looking at family, and we looked at uh, the concept of family as a whole last week, and what we're going to do this week is look particularly at uh, marriage. Now, anytime you preach a sermon on marriage, one of the difficult things is doing one sermon on marriage, because there's a lot that can be covered, and there's a lot that can be emphasized, um, but we're not going to spend too many weeks on it. Next week, uh, will connect quite a bit. Next week's lesson uh, will be on forgiveness, and if you know anything about marriage, that's a key ingredient uh, to any, any sort of successful marriage. But we are going to look at a, a passage this week from Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians fa- chapter 5, and we're going to look at marriage this week uh, from this passage. To anyone who has been in Bert's class on Sunday mornings the last two weeks, you don't need to listen. No, just, um, just kidding. But he's covered a lot of this uh, really well. Uh, he's talked about household codes uh, in ancient Rome. He's talked about some of the way that Paul has uh, molded the idea. And, and the illustration we're going to use is Paul is going to look at some of the ways that uh, the culture around him talks and thinks about marriage. And he's not going to um, get rid of those. Instead, what he's going to do, he's going to look at those cultural views of marriage with his Christ vision. He's going to put his Jesus glasses on and think, okay, so if this is how marriage is done in your culture and in your context, how are we going to do that now that we are trying to embody the love and the goodness and the the salvation that we have in Christ? How are we going to model the truth of Christ in marriage and in our homes and um, with our children and and in our our whole family life? So Ephesians chapter 5 is a look at the household. It's a look at marriage through the lens of Jesus. And how do we see it differently because we are Christ followers? And so the structure of the home, he doesn't get rid of that. Instead of what he does, instead what he does is he looks at the structure that's already in place and he Christianizes it. He baptizes it, uh, as it were, so that we begin to see it through what Jesus has done for us and through how we're supposed to imitate and embody that in the world around us. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is going to summarize largely what marriage is uh, and our responsibilities in it with two really important words, the word submission and the word love. And what's fascinating about that is those two words, yes, they should be key ingredients to any marriage, but those are also foundational words to what our whole posture and attitude is toward everybody we meet as Christians. Uh, Submission and love is what led Jesus to the cross. His submission to the will of God and his submission to uh, what is best for others around him and his love of God and his love for everyone around him. Submission and love are uh, foundational ingredients for who we are as the people of God. And so certainly, if you're going to talk about marriage, you're going to find those two ingredients in there. You're going to find submission and you're going to find love. Um, And so with those two ideas in mind, we're going to, to look through this text But also, before we do so, uh, I want us just to, for a moment, 
Consider what Paul is dealing with when he begins to talk about marriage and husbands and wives and the household and gender and some of the ideas that were prominent in the culture around him. Uh, I made reference earlier to household codes. That's a a word that historians use to talk about the way the household was viewed in an ancient Greco-Roman world. So like in Greek literature and in Roman literature around the time of Paul, we have um, writings that detail the way the household is supposed to be run. And one thing that you see consistent in those writings is that one person is the ultimate and supreme authority over and above all others, and that's going to be the patriarch of the family, the male, the husband, who is also the father, who is also the master. Uh, As Paul goes through Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, he's going to talk to husbands and wives, to uh, fathers and children, and to masters and servants. And by and large, the masters, the fathers, and the husbands are all the same guy. Um, and so, one, if you look at the household, one person gets hit like three times in a row with each new section that Paul moves on to, whereas the other ones, it kind of spreads out a little bit. Um, so, Paul is placing a lot of responsibility with his Christ vision understanding of the household on who the the father, the husband, the master is going to be. And a lot of what he's going to do is going to be reigning in and redefining what culture has said that person's role is. The reality is when you look at what Paul says and you compare it to other household codes, there are a number of differences that emerge. But Paul telling wives to be submissive to their husbands would not shock anybody. Um, that's something you would see in, in all of the household codes. That's something you would see in pretty much every household. In Paul, if the posture of Christianity is love and submission, is not going to look at that and say, no, wives, don't be submissive. Instead, what I want you to do is, uh, is constantly uh, be you know, fighting against your husbands and all that. If, if there's already submission in place, Paul keeps it in place. But what he does is to the person who is told in his culture, you never have to submit, Paul's going to focus on him and say, I'm going to tell you something different. Uh, There actually is going to be submission in your role. There is going to be love that so redefines who you think you are that uh, it's going to be unrecognizable to the culture around you. You're going to have to change everything about how you're a husband, about how you're a father, and about how you're a master. Um, And you're going to change those things in view of who Christ is. And so um, as Paul begins this conversation. He's talking to people who, for the most part, are going to be cool with the idea of children obeying their parents, wives submitting to their husbands, and, and, and uh, servants listening to their masters. Like, none of that's going to raise any ire among anybody. But what he says to husbands, to fathers, and to masters, that's where the controversy comes in in this passage in the ancient world. Um, when you look at some of the writings that we have, one of the things that's really fascinating, I, when I was, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I wrote a master's thesis, and it dealt largely with the topic of gender roles in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And one of the things that's fascinating, when you look at uh, the medical literature of the time, like Galen, Hippocrates, Empedocles, uh, some of these philosophers and medics in the ancient world, um, one of the views you have that's fairly consistent is that men and women are different, obviously. Uh, But that difference lies in going all the way back to the gestational period in the womb. Men are further developed than women are. Men have, uh, basically, they develop quicker in in the womb. So over nine months, men get a lot further along in the process than women do. 
I'm, just, I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying this is ancient views. Um, and so there's going to be several things that develop in men because of that. They're bigger. They're stronger. Uh, their, their genitals are external as opposed to internal was one of the developments that they saw. Um, their mind is more rational. Again, I'm not trying to say that. But, uh, but <coughs> these are views that develop. Uh, and so they were pretty consistent. In fact, they talk about uh, if, a chi- if, if, if a woman is impregnated while her womb is cold, which would generally be after the menstrual cycle, uh, then uh, th- it's more likely to be a woman because the child will develop more slowly in a cold womb. However, if the, child is, if the woman becomes pregnant uh, before the menstrual cycle, it's heating up all month long. And so if it's in a warm womb, it's likely to be a male because it's going to develop a lot faster in there. Again, none of this is true, but this is something you see consistently in ancient medical records. Uh, and because of that, there are a number of things that when you read through some of the literature, you see uh, that they think. They, they think that women are inferior to men. Just looking at some of the language that Aristotle uses to describe some of the gender roles, these are some of the ways that he describes female. He describes being female as a natural deformity. It's natural. It's a normal way of life. But it's a deformity. <laughs> you know, she doesn't become the ultimate pinnacle of what humanity is supposed to be. She's a little bit less than that. Um, <laughs> female, <laughs> I don't know if I should read this one. Um, female yearns for male like the ugly for the beautiful is one of the comparisons that he makes. So in the same way that ugly yearns for beautiful, so female yearns for male. There was an ancient Greek prayer that thanked the gods for three things. One, that you were born uh, uh, free and not a slave, that you were born man and not an animal, that you were born male instead of female. Um, and, and one thing that's interesting about that is there's some similarity there, not exact, to what Paul says in Galatians three twenty-eight that there is uh, neither a slave nor free um, uh, Jew or Gentile, uh, but, or male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, he kind of subverts that prayer into a, a, a Christian understanding, a Christian prayer. Um, but going on with some of the things that, uh, that Aristotle calls a females an incomplete male because they didn't, they didn't develop enough uh, to become male. He says that women have fewer teeth than men, which is one sign of this inferiority. Now, one thing he could have done is count. Uh, <laughs> He didn't go that far in the, in the study, but he does mention that. Uh, he also uh, refers to them as an inferior being. And so those are, those are some of the ideas that you can see um, floating in the world around them. And those are the foundational ideas for why the house codes develop the way that they do, which is man on top, woman on bottom. Now, Paul is going to borrow the structure of those household codes. But he's going to redefine them in some pretty radical ways. For example, he keeps the idea of submission. Because I don't think Paul thinks submission is a bad thing. In our culture, we sometimes do. I think submission is essential to living a life that imitates Christ. Because Christ, even though he was God, even though he existed in the form of God, he made himself nothing. He made himself a servant. He humbled himself. He acted in submission to what was good for other people and what the will of his father was. Submission is central to our understanding of ourselves as Christians. So Paul's not going to get rid of the idea of submission, but he is going to redefine it so that submission is not seen as wives submit to your husbands because you're inferior. Paul says nothing like that. 
Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands because you have fewer teeth. He says nothing like that. Uh, He doesn't root it in inferiority or greatness or importance or power. He undergirds his teaching in the example that we have of Jesus and of his glorious bride and church. Um, As you read through Ephesians, you will see over and over and over again this cosmic, beautiful, descriptive language of the church. The church is not just some ragtag bunch of people who get together and uh, of, of no importance in society, even though that might be how the world sometimes sees the church. God views the church as the most important thing on this earth. There is no organization. There is no committee. There is no senate. There is no government more important or valuable than the collection of God's people in the church. The church is given a very high place uh, in Scripture, especially in the book of Ephesians. And that's the role where Paul sees that's where uh, the wife is. The wife is representative of God's glorious and good, perfected church. And that's not an insult at all. That's actually taking the culture's view and pretty much throwing it away and elevating women to a status higher than anyone had seen before. Paul has a very high view of the wife in the marriage. And the same thing with Christ and uh, in, in the husband. Christ is highly elevated in the book of Ephesians, and Paul is going to describe the husband's role in the same language as he used the role of Christ. And when you look at the story of Christ in the church, you see one who ultimately gives his life on a cross, not doing his own will, but for the love and salvation of the other. And he says, that image right there, that's how I want you to view marriage as an act of self-sacrificial love for another person. Telling a husband in an ancient Greco-Roman world that your wife is so valuable and important that you should not love yourself more. In fact, you should be willing to love her so much that you completely give up yourself for her is entirely unheard of. No one was writing that except for Paul. That's because he put on his Christ vision, and he looked at this relationship through the lens of Jesus. Um, there's another passage that's, that's similar, and it's when you if one thing that might be an interesting series of lessons to do. I, I was thinking about as I was working on this lesson is culturally shocking verses in the ancient world, because sometimes the verses that shock us in the modern world might not be the same verses that would shock them. One verse that I think would be among the most surprising and shocking in all of the New Testament is what Paul is writing here in Ephesians 5 about marriage, uh, but also what he says in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's going to talk here about the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And notice what he says. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Amen, everyone in the ancient world says. That's exactly right. But then he says something that is absolutely unheard of. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. No one would say that. That would be seen as an insult to to being male. Uh, The husband does not have authority. The husband can do what he wants. The husband can have his wife. The husband can have a concubine. The husband can, like, he is in complete control of his own body. What are you talking about, Paul? Paul has so redefined the roles of men and women that in a marriage, they own each other. <laughs> they are one another's, and one another's is theirs. Uh, and so Paul sees that playing out in very real and practical ways, saying, don't deny your spouse. 
Because you exist for them now, and they exist for you, and you are one another's. And so treat each other with the respect and love that, that would embody that idea. And so I think that's similar to the, what he's doing here in Ephesians chapter 5, and it is shocking. Uh, and so there are uh, four ways that uh, historians have noted that some of the ways that Paul writes about in the marriage household codes, particularly in marriage, differs drastically from that of the world around him. One of them is that he begins the whole discussion with something that would not have been written about by anyone else. Um, He begins the whole discussion in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 by saying, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So whatever he's about to say after that is uh, tempered by this idea of mutual submission to one another. Be subject to one another. Even when he's going to talk about children and fathers, he doesn't say, Father, do whatever you want. Child, listen to him. He tells the fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's like, dads, don't try to make your kids angry. In fact, try to raise them with nurture and with love and with admonition so that they can grow into the people you want them to be. Don't teach them anger at a young age. Uh, If you're constantly making your children angry, you're probably setting them up to be angry people. Don't do that. Like, he's, he's, he is uh, tempering what the father's responsibility is in raising the son. He's going to do the same thing when he looks at the Greco-Roman views of marriage. He's going to temper what the husband's responsibility is in radical ways. Uh, but he starts by saying, you guys are supposed to be subject to one another. Neither of you have free reign. Neither of you are completely uh, authoritative and in charge in this thing. You're both going to be listening to and submitting to one another. Now, even that idea right there, in our culture and in a lot of Christian cultures, if you tell husbands, submit to your wives, that sounds kind of strange. And a lot of people would say that's wrong. That's not what Paul says. That's sinful for husbands to submit to their wives. Yet, and this is fascinating, if I were to say, wives, love your husbands, I don't think anyone would have a problem with it. You know what's interesting? Paul never tells wives to love their husbands. Uh, he actually does say submit to one another. He doesn't even say love one another uh, to, in, in this passage. Uh, he says, wives, love your husbands. Yet we all, or husbands, love your wives. Yet we all understand that in a healthy, good marriage, uh, wives are going to love their husbands also. Like, that's an important part of it. The same thing is true with submission. Husbands and wives ought to, from the very first verse, be submissive to one another care about one another, listen to one another, esteem the other as more valuable than yourself. He's going to describe how they do that in the next couple of verses. But uh, the second way that this differs from other household codes is he actually addresses, in this uh, passage, he addresses wives. Instead of just telling the husbands how to rule, he also writes to the wives so that they have responsibility in this. That's ordinarily not done. Normally, it's just you tell the father how to run his household. Here, he's telling the wives to be submissive. That means they are the ones in charge of their own submission. He does not tell the husbands to make your wives be submissive. He never says that. You are not making another person submit. You are, you're, that is not your job. That is not your responsibility. God never told you to do that. You do not make another person submit to you. You be loving and submissive, and they are also called to be loving and submissive. And so when he tells children to obey. When he tells servants, when he addresses wives, he's addressing those who in society would be seen as the inferior, but he is saying, you're in charge of your response. Your husband's not in charge of your response. Uh, 
Uh, And so in that, he is esteeming them as moral agents able to make their own willing, voluntary decision to be submissive. And that's that's an important feature that sometimes gets overlooked. He is not telling the husbands, make your wives submit. He is telling the wives, you're in charge of yourself. And what I want you to do as a follower of Jesus to live with a submissive attitude. That, that's, that's what we're all called to have. Uh, number three, a way in which it differs. The head of the household's role is tempered and made submissive. So when you look at what uh, the husbands are told, uh, he does not say, you have free reign. You are the complete and absolute final authority. Jesus is the complete and absolute final authority, and you are supposed to be modeling him. So look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So he's saying, love your wife as your own self, so that for her to be harmed, you would be harmed. For her to suffer, you would suffer. And and love her so much that you're willing to completely give up yourself for her. The picture of the cross is the one of ultimate self-sacrifice for the sake of another. And he says, husbands, that's on you. Again, that's not the way ancients would have thought about this. That's not the way moderns think about marriage, right? We often think about marriage in terms of, all right, great, I'm getting married. I get uh, a pretty wife. I get a second income, maybe. I get uh, uh, someone who's going to clean the house. I get good dinners. And, like, we, we have a list of all the things we get. But as soon as we start thinking about what we get as the primary purpose in marriage, we have set ourselves up for failure because you won't always get those things, and that's okay. Secondly, we have abandoned the teaching that Paul is trying to shape our worldview to include, which is it's not about what we give, but it's about what you can give. It's a selfless act. It's not supposed to be a selfish act to make your life that much better. It's supposed to be an act of self-giving love. That's what you're called to, to be in a marriage. That's what Jesus was on the cross. And that's the image of all images that Paul uses. Like, talk about an unromantic image to use, the cross of someone dying on it. But Paul says there's something in there that shapes how we view the whole world. And it should shape how you view marriage as well. Again, that's something that you don't see elsewhere. And and that leads to the fourth way in which uh, this is different. As Paul looks at those household codes and he redefines them through the metaphor of Jesus and the church saying, this is where the ultimate reality lies. If you want to know how to do marriage, look to Jesus. If you want to know how to treat your husband or treat your wife, look through the lens of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is what marriage is all about. You might not know that. It's not just about uh, two uh, people becoming one, but it's about two people becoming one in the image of Jesus himself. And so make sure Jesus is a central part of your marriage and of the way you view your responsibility in your marriage. And so this is a fascinating passage. I think it's a beautiful passage. It's a passage that is sometimes misunderstood and misapplied because people read one small phrase from it, and then they take that and they use that as justifiable reason to the husband gets whatever he wants and the wife has to listen. If you read this passage with any carefulness at all, that is not what you're going to walk away from. In fact, one final point about it uh, with the the submission thing. Look at verse 21. where it says, be submissive or subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
That next verse, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Do you know what my Bible does there in verse 22? That word, be subject. If you look at your Bibles, depending on the translation, it might do the same thing. Mine puts it in italics. Do you know why? Because the word be subject or be submissive is not there in Greek. It's not there. What the passage literally says is, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. You're like, wives what to your husbands? Well, we know what the what is. It's in the verse right above it. Be subject to one another. Wives to your husbands. And then he describes what that's going to look like. Husbands, love your wives. And he describes what that looks like. Like the, the whole passage is describing how it is that both husbands and wives submit to one another. Wives do it to their husbands as the church does to Christ. And husbands do it to their wives as Christ did on the cross. And so those are both acts of submissive love toward one another. And that's the foundation of what Paul's whole teaching here on what marriage is going to be. So that's not to say wives don't submit. Wives do submit. But it's also to say, husbands, you have a responsibility here also. It's not all about you. In fact, if, if your life is being bolstered by your relationship with your wife while her life is struggling, you're doing this whole thing wrong. Because I would say, hopefully we all agree, with the Jesus Christ or the Jesus and church relationship, we get the better end of that state, right? Church, church gets salvation. Jesus got the cross. Uh, we got the better end of that thing. Hopefully it looks like that in your marriage as well. Um, so what would that look like in our world? Um, I'm going to end this lesson with a couple of hopefully just practical uh, ways we can embody this message in some real ways in our marriage. Uh, some things that perhaps we can each think about as we think about our spouse or our future spouse or, uh, or uh, our current uh, uh, lives or what our future lives will be. Number one is um, if we're going to embody this message, you're probably going to have arguments with your spouse. Uh, this isn't saying you can't ever argue. That's going to happen. In fact, for a healthy relationship, sometimes you've got to hash a few things out. Um, don't ever insult or abuse the person that you were talking to. Don't ever, ever, ever think that you are in such a superior position that you can belittle or insult uh, the intelligence or the, the person uh, that you are. You are talking to a person who God loves more than you do. Do not insult that person. Do not harm that person. If there is abuse or, uh, or verbal or physical, in your, then you are sinning and you need to stop and immediately repent right now. That is not a safe marriage. That is not what Jesus has called us to, to be. Do not do that. Christians embody something better than that. Don't do that. Um, if you're going to argue, which you will, do so with honor, with love, and respect. Do so as though you are looking at the bride of Christ or so you are looking at Christ. Uh, do so with complete respect for the image of God in this person you're talking to. Um, sometimes that might mean you need to slow down. Sometimes it might mean you need a break. Sometimes it might mean you need to, uh, to shelf this discussion for another day. That might happen sometimes. Don't get so overcome with being right or the emotion of the day that you devalue a person that God loves and that Jesus died for. Don't bring that into your marriage at all. Uh, number two, sometimes pride in ourselves and in our marriage uh, or fear can keep us from doing what our marriage really needs. What I mean by that is sometimes our individual pride can uh, 
blind us to our own faults in the marriage, and we think every day about, man, I wish my husband or my wife would do this, or they're not doing this, or I would have done that, and they didn't do that. And, and we can, we can uh, become so judgmental that we don't see our own failures, and we only see theirs. So on the one hand, we have like individual pride that can cause problems, but also there could be pride in our marriage that can keep us from seeking help when we might need it. Uh, or even if you don't need it yet. Uh, even if your marriage is healthy, there are things that can uh, strengthen it. There are things that can help it through a rough patch. There are things like counseling. Don't be too proud to engage in what could actually be very beneficial. Um, that's, that's not an embarrassing or bad or shameful thing. Uh, in fact, it could be a very good, positive, and helpful thing. Be open to it. Be open to reaching out to a community of people who love you when there are issues you want to help, uh, you need work through, or you want to seek the advice of others. Sometimes we're afraid to get advice from other people. And uh, not, granted, not everyone's advice is good, but there's virtually no topic in this world where not listening to anyone else is a good idea. Um, the church is a community for a reason. And one is so that our voices can blend together and our voices can, can sharpen one another. We can help each other through difficulties, whether that's with our Bible study or with our lives or with moral issues or with our marriage itself. So don't be afraid of counseling. Don't be afraid of the community. Don't be too proud to, to reach out when you need help. Do so. In community, make sure it's safe for them to do that. Uh, you cannot bring judgment or criticism or, or um, uh, you can't make it an unsafe place for, for people to uh, reach out. You have to be accepting of where things are and be ready to respond in love to try to help people who you are called to love. Um, and so don't let fear or pride keep you from getting help or keep you from uh, making changes that might need to be made. Number three... Um, this is a fun one, I think. Uh, but try to combine consistent and random acts of kindness in your marriage. What I mean is there should be some things that are just part of the day-to-day -day acts of kindness that you do for your spouse. Uh, whether it's helping fix something or clean something or um, uh, making coffee for the other person or making them a smoothie or whatever it is. Like you, you look at your day, there should hopefully be things that you're doing that are kind for your spouse day in and day out. But tragically, year after long year, those acts of kindness that you do every day, I'm not saying this should happen, but it probably will happen, they become taken for granted. Um, they just become expected. And so on the one hand, try to not do that, but also try to intersperse the daily acts of kindness with random acts of kindness. Do things the other person's not expecting. Get them a gift they're not expecting. Um, give them a massage when they, uh, you know, aren't, aren't expecting. Like, make sacrifices for the other person. And what you'll find is a lot of times those aren't actually sacrifices. They're enjoyable. And when you have a happier spouse and when you have a happier relationship, you generally tend to be happier. That's good for your health. That's good for your family. That's good for uh, your, your getting through the day. You know, like, like, Make kindness a regular part of your marriage. Make fun times together. Make games, make laughter, make stories a regular part of your marriage. I think each of those things could be beneficial. Find things that you enjoy doing. If you like board games, then try to do that more often. If you don't like board games, then find something else you enjoy doing. If you like hiking, go on hikes together. If you don't like hiking, find something else. Um, you know, there's, there, are, there are a million things you can do. You go, 
I don't know if anyone's ever watched the show Chopped before. Um, here's one thing you can do. It's a, go into your pantry or refrigerator and find five random ingredients that you haven't used in a while. And put them on a counter, cover them with a towel, and uh, you and your spouse play a game. You have 30 minutes or however long you want to do. Um, to use those five ingredients to make something. And you have no idea what it's going to be. They don't know what it's going to be. But try that. And all of a sudden, eat it together. See if it's nasty or see if it's good. Uh, Lauren and I have done that before. And she's remarkably better than I am. But uh, I'm sitting there grilling bananas. and thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. But, uh, but find fun things you could do with each other. That's just one example. But there's a million of them. Um, read books together. Read books on marriage. Sometimes those have great ideas in there. Both of you, read a book. You can read different books. You can talk about the things that you read. But... Be willing to put active, precious time into your marriage, sometimes just doing silly, fun things, because I think that makes life better also. Be silly with your spouse, I guess. Uh, Number four, prioritize time for a healthy, consistent sexual relationship. I'm not going to go into great detail, but it's important. Um, Kiss regularly um, as much as possible. I think this is a healthy thing to do. Go to bed at the same time. Um, Even just doing that. Uh, it opens up the door to uh, a lot of things, um, but also it uh, can open up the door to making sure that you guys pray together every night before bed. I think that's a really helpful thing to be involved in. Um, hold each other's hands, pray, kiss every night before bed. That's a really, uh, uh, if you get into a habit of that, I don't know of many habits that are healthier. Before your prayer, talk about your day, talk about things you might want to pray for for the other person, show that you're listening to that person, and then pray for that person. Again, listening to someone and praying for someone while you're holding their hand and they're hearing you, there's not much that shows a greater concern and love and spiritual support for that person than that. Um, I would also say, say you are having one of those arguments we talked about earlier. When you hold someone's hand and you pray for them, it's a lot harder to be angry at the end of that prayer than you were at the beginning. It helps refocus your priorities a little bit. Beautiful, helpful habit to, to make a part of your marriage. And then uh, finally, number five, and this one goes along with it, but basically talk and pray with each other. Make that, you know, make that a nighttime ritual, but also make that a regular part of your life. If your wife is telling you how difficult her day was, if your husband's telling you how stressed he is about work, that might be a good time to talk about it and to pray about it. If you're talking about, you know, frustrating decisions you don't know how to make with the kids, and all, that might be a good time to hold each other's hand and to pray about those things. Um, let anger, perhaps, uh, let bitterness, let stress become an alarm clock in your marriage that says, now is time to hold hands and pray. Um, and I think if you do that regularly, um, again, it'll, it'll have benefits in your marriage that, uh, that are difficult to, to quantify. Um, a person you kiss regularly, a person you hold their hand and pray for regularly, a person you laugh and play with regularly, a person that you treat with honor and kindness and respect even when you're upset, a person that you, uh, you are constantly working on your marriage is not a person that you get a divorce from. Uh, those are the types of things when you have that in a relationship that help strengthen and solidify a marriage relationship, and they can all be beneficial uh, if we implement and practice them. So as we bring our lesson to a close, I want to challenge each spouse in here, or if you have someone who you think is going to be your spouse one day, um, not just like a random person who you, who you <laughs> see, you're like, that's going to be them, but I'm talking to like someone you're in a relationship with. Um, 
this week, act in kindness towards that person. Get them something. Get them a surprise. Get them a gift. Uh, give them uh, you know, something that, uh, that maybe they're not expecting just to bring a little bit of joy into your relationship. Pray together this week. Make that uh, a priority. And uh, just those two things. Pray with them. Make sure you make time to do that. And uh, do something fun for them, something kind for them. And uh, see if you enjoy it. If there's anyone here tonight who has uh, heard about the marriage relationship and thought, uh, you know, the relationship between Jesus and the church sounds pretty good. And I would like to be part of that. Um, you have the opportunity right here and right now. Uh, you can name Jesus as Lord of your life. You can be baptized into him, having your sins washed away, being made pure, blameless, holy, and beautiful before Christ. And uh, you can live for him and live with him. And if you have that need, whether it's, uh, you want to talk to one of our elders in the library in the back or sit on the front row, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.